I want to start this evening with a little bit of a reminder. You remember that there's a particular blessing in the book of Revelation. We're certainly told that if we study God's word, if we meditate on it day and night, that we will be blessed. We're certainly told that. But in the beginning of the book of Revelation, we're told that blessed are those who hear and, uh, and read and do the things that are written in this book. And I want to remind you of that today because the, the judgment that we have today, which is the sixth seal, is a particularly difficult and hard judgment. We are now in the middle of the tribulation period. We are where it is happening. God is judging people. And this particular judgment is to get people to repent. And spoiler alert, they don't. They get to the end of it and they won't repent. They won't change. Even though judgments are on their way and they are still going to get worse from this point on. Now, we have had six, uh, seven seal judgments, and, and all of them are not judgments. Sometimes, and remember, it's a scroll, and there are seals that are on it. These would be wax seals that you would have around a scroll, and then you would have a ring that would press the signet in, and only the lamb that was slain was able to open those seals, and he would tear each of those seven seals open until the scroll was completely opened. Those seven seals, some of them were judgments and some of them were events. The trumpets are the same way. Some of them are judgments and some of them are events. So we have seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowl judgments. And those are all judgments, but they don't make 21 total judgments. Some of them are judgments and some of them are events rather than judgments. The one we're covering today is a judgment. It is an army that marches through the world and leaves an incredible amount of destruction. There are five things, if you're a note taker, that we get from these pa this passage that we're covering today. Number one, there is the release of four deadly angels that are bound at the river Euphrates. Now, when we get to chapter 16, we're going to see that the river Euphrates dries up and is probably connected with chapter 9 and the sixth seal. But we're going to see that there are four angels who are bound. I would say that they are fallen angels if they're bound. There's no reason to, to, to make angels you know, bound, in, you know, uh, caught. But, but there is for demonic angels, fallen angels. So number one, there is a release of four deadly bound angels at the river Euphrates. There is an army with them of 200 million horsemen. The largest army in the world today is the Chinese army. These are the latest numbers, so who knows where we are now. The, the numbers like in these things always lag. But the largest army in the world today is the Chinese army. They have a little over 2 million people that are in their army and about 1.7 million that are in reserve. The United States has the second largest army in the world. But... Let's just say 4 million if you count the reserves for China, a little less than that for the United States. Those are big armies, but nowhere near 200 million. Some believe that this number, 200 million, is just a large number that doesn't represent exactly 200 million. It's a, it's a big number. It's a number you can't really count. No one's going to set and count 200 million, right? So it may be that it's not quite that large. It, it may be that it's an exact number. The third thing we're going to see is a description of the army and its weapons. 
Some believe that the horses that they ride are creatures, like we saw in the fifth seal. We had the, the, the from the bottomless pit came scorpion-like creatures that were locusts and scorpions, and they attacked men, and they, they, the men wouldn't die, but they were tormented for five months by these creatures. And there are people who believe that they were helicopters or they were something else that they were trying to describe, and the text just doesn't allow for that. They were creatures that had a king, Apollyon, uh, which means destruction, which is a demon uh, that was over these creatures. So some believe that the, this description is of 200 million creatures that is sent on this deadly rampage. Um, I kind of see it as being some kind of a weapon for this army, that these would be real horsemen or real men uh, that are driving the equipment. And um, we'll take a look at that. Uh, number four, we see the destruction the army has. And it's a broad destruction. As I said, this is, a, this is a heavy judgment and it takes a heavy toll. And number five, we see a lack of repentance despite the devastating judgment by those who remain. And we want to talk about what repentance means. You see somebody hold up a sign that says, repent. What are they saying to you? Do they, are they giving you enough information by just having a sign that says repent? So we're going to talk about what they should do to repent and what we need to do if we need to repent today. So we begin in Revelation chapter 9, verse 13. It says, then the sixth angel sounded. This is the sixth trumpet. They're the seventh trumpets. And so the sixth angel sounds. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. So this particularly devastating judgment in the book of Revelation comes from the altar in heaven. Remember that the, temp, the tabernacle that was built and eventually the temple that was built that had an altar that was there where you would sacrifice animals. That's what an altar is. An altar is not a stage where you come after a service to get things right with God. An altar is a place where you make a sacrifice. And that those things in the temple or the tabernacle were a shadow of things in heaven. So there's a real altar in heaven where sacrifices are made or where God receives our sacrifices. And we know as Christians that we're supposed to live lives of sacrifice. We are supposed to be sacrificing for people who are around us, making sure that we're living our lives for God and not for ourselves. And that includes sacrifice. And so this voice comes from the altar. What is God trying to say when the command to release these four particularly brutal angels that comes from the altar. I think it would be that there's been sacrifice that is made for everyone and that anyone can come to the altar. And if they don't come to the altar now, the responsibility will be upon them one day. The window of grace is open. The door to walk through grace and find salvation is open. And you can receive that today by coming to him, by, by believing in him, by trusting in him, which is what believing means. Believing doesn't mean that you believe he exists. It means that you trust in him, that you would say, Lord, I want to trust in you. And Jesus died upon the cross as a sacrifice for us. And this altar would represent that. And if you don't take advantage of the altar, what's going to happen? 
judgment. We will be judged. It's appointed once for man to die and then comes judgment. I have been saved from the, the judgment that is to come. I will not be judged because I'm in Christ. If you are in Christ, you will not be judged either. So it's just interesting to me that when this angel sounds and is about to give the command to, least, to release these four horrible angels, that it comes from the four, within the four horns of the altar. God's making that distinction between sacrifice and forgiveness that's available for you and judgment that's going to come from heaven. Those are the two things that, that, that humans have in store for them in the future. Either forgiveness from the cross or judgment. Now, uh, you can learn a lot from the first time that you see things in the Bible. And the first time we ever see an altar is in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. It says, Then the Lord appeared to Abram to your descend and said, I, To your descendants I will give the land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And so this altar and this sacrifice was a, a way to make a sacrifice and to worship him. Now, what was this voice that spoke from the altar? What did it say? Verse 14, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, I haven't checked lately to see if Euphrates, the Euphrates River is going up or down, but the Euphrates River has been drying up for a while and it has dried up to a significant place. Perhaps like here in the United States, our rivers and our lakes had a good year. Maybe they've had a good year and the Euphrates River is going to do good. But it's not just a drought or a lack of water that has caused the Euphrates River to dry up. It's the misuse of water. It's people not having good treaties with the people around them and taking too much water from the river Euphrates that has made it dry up. I wish I could say that wasn't a problem with the Colorado River. But we got four states that are supposed to work together with it and they don't necessarily work together really well. So we can understand how in an area like Iraq and Iran and these areas there that are dealing with the Euphrates River, how they could not deal with it in the, in the best way that they could. Now, he says to release these angels that are bound. And it's particularly bad angels that are bound. This is not the only place that we find that angels are kept in chains. There's, there's several passages that tell us that. Angels who didn't keep their proper place are chained up and reserved for judgment. There's a, a place, there's a Hebrew, uh, Greek word called Tartarus that's translated hell, but it really means a pit that holds angels. And, and we'll talk more about that at some point. But here we have these four angels that are bad enough that they've been bound and they are now released and the destruction that comes from them is spoken to us in the book of Joel as well listen to what it says in Joel 2 1 through 4 it says blow the trumpet in Zion and sound the alarm in my holy mountain let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming for it is at hand a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like the morning cloud spread over the mountain, a people come, great and strong, the like of whom has never been, nor will there ever be any such after them. 
And that reminds us of the language of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 12. There's a time coming on the earth that is worse than anything this world will ever see and worse than anything it's ever going to see. So there's a people coming upon the earth and they are worse than anything there will ever be or anything that there's going to be. Even for many successive generations, it says, a fire devours before them and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them and behind them desolation and wilderness. Surely nothing shall escape them. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. We're going to see this connected to Revelation. And like swift steeds, so they run. They move through the land and they leave behind them complete and total devastation. So in verse 16, it says, now the number of the army of the horsemen, a horseman would be the people. That's why I think it's connected to the book of Joel, which talks about the horses that are numbered. So it says the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. Now, this battle could be a battle that is connected to, the, to, to Armageddon. And when I say Armageddon, you all know what I mean, right? The last battle ever. The battle of Armageddon is taking place in the Valley of Jezreel when Jesus Christ returns. I'm not talking about returning for his church. I'm talking about returning to the earth. The battle of Armageddon is taking place. And Armageddon means it's Armageddon, it's Mount Megiddo. So in the Valley of Jezreel is a major valley that runs through Israel, and there's been several battles that have been fought there. It's the perfect place for a battle like this. You stand on top of Mount Carmel, where Elijah had his battle uh, with the 450 prophets of Baal, and you overlook the Jezreel Valley, which now is green and beautiful and used to be completely desolate, but it is where, and, and Mount Megiddo is right there, and this is where this battle will take place. So I want to jump ahead a little bit in Revelation and read you the section on Armageddon. This is in chapter 16, verses 12 through 16. We're not going to dive into it. We'll do that when we get there in our study of the book of Revelation. But I just want you to see the connection between uh, chapter 9 and chapter 16. It says, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl, which is interesting to me too. You've got the sixth trumpet and now the sixth angel pouring a bowl of judgment out. So the sixth angel poured open his bowl on the river Euphrates and the waters dried up. So the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And, I, and, and the, uh, from the east there would be most notably today and the army which could probably cause the biggest threat is China. I'm not saying that China is the answer because who knows? Things can change quickly. And God might rise up from an, another nation, a large army, but it's dried up to make way for the kings of the east. And we may be even seeing this prophecy in our day. Doesn't mean it was dried up in a second. It was dried up over a period of time or dried up. It says to make way for the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw their unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon. So in this particular army, Armageddon, Satan is involved in it. And there's demons that are involved in it. And they're like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast, which is the Antichrist. And we'll get more familiar with him here. And out of the mouth of the false prophet. 
We'll get more familiar with the Antichrist in further studies, is what I mean. They are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I am coming as a thief. And this is Jesus speaking. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And they gathered them together in a place in Hebrew, Armageddon, which is Mount Megiddo, which would be in the Valley of Jezreel that I shared with you. Now, when you read that, you see that there's a demonic influence in chapter 16. So this is why when you hear someone teaching uh, Revelation chapter 9 and the 200 million horsemen, that they will call this a demonic army. I don't, I don't believe it's a demonic army. I think it's a demon-possessed army. I think there are spirits and demons that are behind this work. And I don't think that's, that's unusual. I think that Hitler and, and that what Germany went through, I think there were demonic spirits behind that as well. I think that we go back to Pol Pot or we go back to some of the great tyrants in the world that they were demon-possessed and there were demon activity behind them. So I don't necessarily think that this is, was, is, is unusual, but it certainly is on a scale that we've never seen before. And so... Revelation chapter 9 may, and well, may as well be, it, it might be connected to chapter 16. I think there is a connection. Uh, we'll see as it unfolds how much they really are connected. Then we get to verse 17. And thus I saw the horses. So now we're told that the horsemen are 200 million, 200 million and he saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red and hyacinth blue and sulfur yellow. So they had breastplates on. So there was something that protected them. In today's warfare, this would be more than just breastplates of an ancient army. In fact, these horsemen might not be horses at all. They may be some kind of a vehicle that they are attacking from, some kind of, a, of an army vehicle. It says, and the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions and out of their mouth came flame, smoke, and brimstone. So you've got like a mane of a lion with flames, smoke, and brimstone. But by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed. By flames, smoke, and brimstone, a third of the earth is killed. Now, when we saw the first four seals opened, we saw the four horsemen ride forward. And it said that it was given power to these four horsemen to kill a quarter of the earth. Now, we believe that these four horsemen are representatives of the kind of things that happened during the tribulation period, but they took already a quarter of the earth and now a third of the earth is being taken along with that. Now, I'm not good at, enough at math to figure out where the, if there were so many people in the world, if you kill a quarter, then you kill a third, how many are left? But it's getting smaller and smaller. And remember the Bible says, by the time this is done, flesh is, is rare on the earth. A, there's such a, this is such a disaster that they are given power over a third of the earth. And then it says in verse 18, by these plagues, the third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which came out of their mouth. And the power 
is in their mouth and in their tails, and their tails are like serpents having heads with them, they do harm. Now, people in the past have seen missiles here. So, if you have a missile, and out of the back of the missile, you have fire and brimstone and smoke, and the warhead in the front of the missile, in the head of the missile, a warhead in the head, and missiles being shot out and bringing destruction. I think that's a possibility. I don't believe, as we studied last time we were together, that the locust scorpion things were helicopters. Okay, remember that? But I do believe that at, this is not a description of the horsemen. This is the description of the horses that the horsemen are riding. And so it's possible. Could this be some other kind of a weapon that's being used? Something that we're not familiar with? S certainly it could be. I saw the latest fighter jets that are being released fly with several drones. Each fighter jet has their drones, their own drones, which will fly and protect them that are controlled by the fighter jet as well, which is just something that you never even thought could possibly happen. I just watched it and I thought, where will we be in five years? As fast as knowledge is increasing, where will we be at in five years? To have this army with 200 million men or so making its way through the world by the time it's done, killing a third of the world, and it looks like there are rockets that are involved. I'm not by any means saying for sure, all right? I'm just saying people have seen that there, and I can see why they say that. It could be something completely and totally different that we haven't seen yet. Now, verse 20. But the rest of mankind, who was not killed by those plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship demons. A third of the world is destroyed and the rest of mankind will not repent. These are people who are set in their ways. These are the, those who dwell on the earth. The Bible says that these things come upon those who are earth dwellers. In Luke 21, we're told to pray that we would be counted as worthy to escape all of these things that will come upon those who dwell on the earth. And we know that we're just passing through. We're citizens of heaven. We're ambassadors of heaven. The Bible says in Revelation 3.10 that it says, um, because you have kept my word to persevere, I will keep you from the great hour of testing that's coming upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. The, the Bible says in the book of James that if you love this world, then that is adultery towards God. You can't have a love for this world and a love for God. You've got to be able to see that the things of this world will never satisfy you and will never fulfill you, that your true place of fulfillment, of, uh, of really walking as God wants you to, is in a relationship with Him. It's not anything to do with this world, but it's everything to do with them. They put everything into their false gods. And the world is still worshiping false gods. A couple of passages that will help us understand this. First of all, when people worship false gods, when we go back to the times of, uh, of, the, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the early uh, Israelites that were in the land, they worshiped the Baals. Not just Baal, 
but the Baals. These were several different gods. There was Baal Molech. There was Baal Marduk. There was, there was Baal Zebub, right? The Lord of the Flies, Baal Zebub. So there's Baal Zebub. And, and they each represented different gods. And if you, like, like Mar, uh, Molech was the god of pleasure. Baal Molech was the god of pleasure. And if you wanted more pleasure in your life, then you sacrificed your child to Molech. They would set up, and, and uh, this is one of the reasons that the people in Canaan were judged. God said he judged them because they passed their children through fire. They had taken, and God gave them 400 years to repent, and they didn't repent of it. But you know what the sad thing is? There were two kings in Israel that set up a statue to Molech in the valley of Gehenna, which is what is translated hell which is probably why it's translated hell, and that Israel passed their children through fire to sacrifice them to the God of pleasure. So that today we might say, well, we don't worship false gods. We don't have the Greek pantheon. We don't have the Roman pantheon. We don't have the Baal pantheon. We don't have these different gods that we worship. But if we're living for pleasure, we do. If we're living for money, we do. If we're living for stuff, we do. If we're living our lives for ourselves, narcissistically, living for our own lives, then we do. We are worshiping those gods. Now listen to what's behind those gods. It says in Deuteronomy 32, 16 and 17. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons and not to gods. The power behind their god of pleasure or their god of wine or their goddess of fertility, which was, was, was worshipped through sexual acts and, 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 and temple prostitution, they sacrificed to demons. It was demons that were behind all of these things. And don't you think that when people live for money today that there's demonic spirits at work behind it? Or when people live for pleasure today, when people say, I don't want to follow God, I want to live after my own life, I want to do my own thing, that there's not demonic activity behind it. In their day, they set up little wooden idols in their house because they wanted to serve a financial God. Today, people serve a financial God as well. You might not put up a little wooden or stone or gold idol in your house, but you got gold somewhere that you're worshiping the gold, the financial God. And I'm, saying, I'm not saying it's wrong to have gold, I'm just saying the same demons that were at work within the pantheon of gods are the same demons that are at work today. Listen to what Ro Romans puts it in a broader sense. Listen to what Romans 1 says. This is Romans 1, 20 through 21, and I skip 22, and then I go to 23 through 25. It says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen. This is telling us that God created the world and when we look at a beautiful sunset or when we look at a, comp a complexity of a creature or our own, or our own bodies, the, the creation, that we know there's a God. Because you, you can't have a creation without a creator. You've got to have a creator to have a creation. It doesn't just happen. It goes on to say, being understood in the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that you are without excuse because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, and they changed the glory of the corruptible God 
into the image like corruptible man and birds of the air and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them over to uncleanliness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged, listen to this, the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's the world we live in. We live in a world that, that rejects God and worships creation, worships Mother Earth, believes that this is what we should be living for instead of living for God. And this is the kind of world that we're going to see these judgments poured out. And they will refuse. They're worshiping demons. And even though the majority of the world would say, that's silly, what a silly thing for you as a Christian to say, the demonic world is real. The demonic world blinds the eyes. Satan himself blinds the eyes of those who don't believe. The Bible says he is the God of this world. And there is more demonic activity happening that has to do with the souls of men and women not coming to Christ. I'm not talking about demonic boogeymen hiding behind your car in your closet or in your car in your garage so that you go outside and oh, the devil makes a noise and you're like, the devil's after me and you run off. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the very real battle over the souls of men and women because the Bible says the gates of hell will not prevail against you. I will build my church here and, I, and, and uh, the, uh, the gates of hell will not prevail. So there's a very real battle that goes on. It goes on to say then, and their idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood. These were gods that represented different things, which could neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent. There's a second time we're told that. They did not repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their theft. They sacrificed to demons. They worshiped idols. And they didn't repent of murders, of sorceries, of sexual immorality, or of thefts. They wouldn't repent. Now, notice that it says that they wouldn't repent of these things. Because the word repent does not mean turn from sin. If you look it up in the dictionary, you're going to eventually get to that, that definition of, of repent. Because that's the way people have used it. But I can repent from anything. If I go and pick a color to paint my house and I get home and I realize this would probably never happen to any of us guys. And the wife says, my wife says, you're not painting our house that color. And I go, I like that color. I think our house would look good that color. That's the color I would like to, to paint the house. And she says, we're not painting it that color. And so I repent from painting the house that color. That's what repenting is. I have changed my mind, wisely, by the way, in not painting my house that color. That's repentance. When the guy holds up a sign that says repent, here's what you should do. When you walk down the street and somebody says, repent, just because you just did exactly what he's telling you to do. You turned around and went the other way. That's what repentance says. So when Jesus said in Mark chapter 1, repent and believe the gospel, it wasn't repent from your sins in order to be saved. That would be works. It's 
Repent and believe the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus died for you so you could be saved. And so you repent and you go, I'm no longer living for myself, but I'm now going to live for God. That is repentance. And the fruits of repentance will come. And the fruits of repentance will be turning from sin. Once you come to Christ, when you say, I'm done living for myself, I'm no longer going to live for myself, but I'm going to live for Christ. I'm going to be a believer. I'm going to be a disciple. I'm going to be a follower of Christ. That's your repentance. You've changed your mind. You're no longer going to live for yourself, but you're going to live for him. And then he transforms you. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Uh, old things pass away and everything becomes new. And one of the things that changes inside of me is that I now want to do what God wants me to do. I now want sin out of my life. I now, I am now heartbroken when I sin because I, I would like to get it out of my life because I want to serve the one who died for me. I want to live the way he wants me to live. And so Jesus said, if you love me, then you'll keep my commandments. And John says, if someone says that they love him, but they don't keep his commandments, they're lying. Not because repentance is turning from sin, but because repentance turns into the result of walking with Christ, which the fruit of that is saying, I want to live the way God wants me to live. You can't be in a real relationship with Jesus, a saving relationship with him, and not have the way that you live be changed. Now, some people might look at that and go, well, that's just, that just sounds like a bunch of semantics to me in the order that it happens. But the order is very important because salvation is a free gift. And you don't have to take a shower to be able to be cleaned up by him. I don't have to take a bath before I take a shower. I come to Christ, the old Billy Graham song, just as I am. I come to him and he forgives me and turns me into a new person. They would not repent. They would not stop living for themselves even after a third of the world is destroyed. What would happen if they would repent? Do you remember who, well, well, God said this about a few of the kings, but do you remember that one of the kings that God said was the worst king who ever lived was a guy by the name of Ahab? Do you remember who Ahab was married to? Jezebel. Both of them were bad. Jezebel was worse. But he was the worst king that Israel had ever had. And when Elijah prophesied to him all the things that were going to happen to him because of his wickedness, do you know that the Bible says that he humbled himself and he put on sackcloth and ashes and wept. And that God said, because he has humbled himself, I am now going to relent and I will not do these things during his lifetime. I'm blown away by that. If you know the story of Ahab, that was a mess. But God would honor his humbling. Anyone who would repent, if they would have repented of their deeds, the judgments would have been less in the future. You say, well, they were already written, but they wouldn't be written that way had they repented. Had they repented, there'd be a different ending to the story. The story is flexible depending on how people respond, but they wouldn't repent. Is it possible that you have a story in your future that could change because you repent today? Because, <clears throat> and I'm not saying what you repent from, whatever it may be in your life you need to repent from. Whatever God would speak to you about, there's something you need to repent from. And there's a result from that in the future. But if you'll repent from it today, the story will be different. You'll have a different ending. 
Because God honors humility so much so that when Ahab humbled himself, God honored it. And someone asked me the question on this trip, was Ahab saved? Was that saving salvation? I had to stop and think. I'd never thought of it that way. I had to stop and think, could Ahab have been saved? And I'm not saying that he was, but no one's beyond it. There's not a person alive who could not receive Christ. Maybe your repentance needs to be turning away from your, living your life and living for him. Maybe that's the repentance you need right now. Maybe your repentance is as a Christian, you're involved in things you shouldn't be involved in. And God said, come out from among them and be ye separate. And that's the repentance that you need to do today. But don't let there be God warning you. God putting up roadblocks in the way. God giving you little messages saying, stop this. And you ignore it and go around the roadblock. Years ago, we had a pastor on staff and uh, he uh, was set on marrying someone and felt like God had told him, don't do it. In fact, it told him, if you do this, then there will be great difficulty in your life. Later on, after the marriage had been dissolved and he had gone, been through the ringer, he told me that story and how ashamed he was that when God gave him a roadblock, that he went around it. It was like danger ahead. But he was like, I don't care, I'm doing it anyway. This is what I want. Even though God had clearly given him that roadblock, he went around it. Is God giving you a roadblock? Could the story in your life be different? Like the story could be different in the end of the book of Revelation. Had they repented and begin to serve and follow God. But even with that, talk about a roadblock. Some demonic army, and a third of the world being destroyed, and people still not repenting. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for the time that we can spend here in the book of Revelation. And Lord, this indeed is a heavy passage, especially when it comes to the fact that these people would not repent even after this event. Lord, I pray for everyone who's here. I pray for non-believers and believers. I pray for believers that are involved in things they shouldn't be involved in. And you're putting up roadblocks and you're showing them that they need to stop these things that are going on, but they won't repent. I pray that they would. I pray that they would turn. It's, it, there, there's none of us here that cannot repent and turn from those things and begin to live our lives for you. And Father, we admit we need your help. I also pray for those who are here who don't know you, that they would enter into a relationship with you and get to know you. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.